Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Tori Peters on her debut novel, Detransition Baby. Tori Peters lives in Brooklyn and holds an MFA from the University of Iowa and a Master's in Comparative Literature from Dartmouth. She is the author of two novellas, Infect Your Friends and Loved Ones and The Masker. And today we're going to be talking about Tori's debut novel, which is Detransition Baby. Tori, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me. First of all, how would you describe this novel? Well, it's the story of a trans woman in her 30s in New York City, specifically Brooklyn. And her life is sort of a mess. You can kind of think sort of flea bag, but trans and in Brooklyn. And her partner, her ex, comes to her uh, with this wild proposition. Her ex is a trans woman who detransitioned and got his boss pregnant. And he comes to Reese with this proposition to raise a family together as, as sort of the three of them. And these three characters, Reese, Amy, Stroke, Amos, and um, Katrina form the sort of the centrality of the of the story so we're going to talk about each of those three characters in turn and some of the issues around them as we do so Reese, first of all yeah Fleabag is a is a sort of great comparison but tell us tell us something more about Reese and who she is well she's kind of like a I mean in in sort of queer terms you might say that she's like a she's a femme she's kind of snarky she's a little bit bitchy she's they're very interested in sort of like that life of a certain kind of womanhood that would be like a more sort of traditional womanhood that isn't necessarily available to her as a trans woman, but she very much performs it. And with at the same time, a sort of layer of irony over that performance. So she's, she's a bit snarky, but she also really badly wants to be a mother really badly wants to like have people in her life to love both being like men, children, friends, and kind of the problem is that a lot of that stuff isn't necessarily available to her. One of the things she talks about early on in the in the story, which is, is a great little explanation, is what she calls the sex in the city problem for trans women. What's that? Yeah, so that, that came out of me where I was when I was in my 30s writing this novel, that I looked around at a lot of the... I was looking for models for sort of like, how does one move on in life after transition, especially in this era where the sort of possibilities for trans women are definitely expanded from what they were 10, 20 years ago. I was like, well, you know, I know what it means to be like a trans woman in your 20s in Brooklyn. You go to parties, you date, you do that sort of thing. But like, what does it mean for to have stability in your 30s? 
So I looked around to see how other women were doing it. And I came up with this thing called the sex in the city model, which was sort of like, it's a little tongue in cheek, but, and I think it changes for every generation, but the cis woman around me had one of four solutions that were modeled on the um, characters from sex in the city. You could be a, a Miranda and have a baby. You could be a Charlotte and get a husband. You could be a Samantha and have a career, or you could be a Carrie and try and find meaning through art. And, there's sort of like how how the cis women I knew were finding meaning. But the problem for me as a trans woman and for a lot of trans women I know is that we're at this time in sort of like the evolution of trans possibilities where we can aspire to that, which I think even 20 years ago, aspiring to any of those things would be would be a wild. But now we can aspire to it and we can almost have it, but there's these specific obstacles to us actually getting it. So the sex in the city problem for us was that there are these four options that women find meaning, but she just couldn't quite have any of them. There's also linked to this a joke when she first, I think it's when she first meets Amy, that Reese always says to people when she meets them, which is about basically the jobs that are available to trans women. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I wrote that joke. So the joke, it's changed over the years, but it was sort of like... It's hard for me to even remember this joke because I've told it so many times in so many different iterations. But the the joke is basically there's three jobs available to trans women. You know, are you are you a hairdresser? Do you work in tech? Or are you a prostitute or a sex worker? And the joke is that you hope that the answer is that they're a prostitute because they're the ones with a good sense of humor, which is true. Every sex worker I know has a great sense of humor. And that was actually like there was a bit of truth in that joke that most of the trans women I knew. Sometimes there are also waitresses. Reese was a waitress, you know, but are you working in sort of, uh, you know, do you work at Sephora? Do you work at, uh, as a waitress? Are you doing hair? Or are you, there's a whole, you know, contingent of trans women who know how to code and work in computers and sort of like an in-group stereotype of these different types of trans women. Or are you sort of doing some version of sex work in which it, and oftentimes there is actually like the opportunity to do like middle-class sex work, but it's a really, that joke is because there's so many stereotypes of trans women doing sex work out there that it's like, it's a type of joke that I usually would only tell to other trans women. But in this book, I was like, you know what, I'm just going to like talk to the audience the same way I talk to my friends. And that means that you get this joke. You mentioned how Reese has certain ideas of sort of traditional cis womanhood that she aspires to. And we'll talk about, you know, her desire for motherhood later on, which, you know, seems, a, you know, an entirely deep and sincere wish. But she also, with this, embarks on this sort of series of masochistic relationships with, like, horrible cis men. And particularly a series of men who are, I guess, not sincere in their desire to sleep with trans women, but are what are described in the book as tranny chasers. Yeah. Who are these men? So in Reese's case, I think they weren't actually chasers. You know, I think, or or there were, what I tried to do is complicate the idea of, of chasers because there's a kind of thing that happens with the men who like trans women where it sort of ends up being like, well, if you like trans women, it's a fetish, right? Like you, it's, it's not a genuine kind of love. And that I think that there, what I was trying to make a distinguish here is that there's, there's different reasons that men love trans women. And there are some who are like, definitely like they fetishize trans women in the exact same way. And usually they fetishize a specific body part on trans women in the same way that, and that feels oftentimes very bad to be, to be desired that way for the same reason that like for, you know, a cis woman, you might 
you know, a guy who only wants you for your breasts, it feels bad. So there's that sort of thing. But then there's also what you sort of encountered in, or a lot of trans women have encountered, are also people who are obsessed with trans women because they're sort of crypto trans women. They have, you know, something's going on with their gender and they recognize it in trans women and they want to get close to trans women to sort of like live this gender possibility vicariously. But it's, they're sort of, what's going on with that is very buried or dissociated. So you can run into these men who are sort of quote unquote chasers. And the reason that they're actually so interested in trans women is that they themselves are maybe some sort of trans women. So there's those kind of men. And then there's finally just men who are interested in women, but are interested in women whom they can have power over. And because trans women are so marginalized and often don't have options, there's a whole group of, of cis men who are very interested in trans women because it's a, a group of women that they by dint of, you know, being stable men uh, and stable, having a stable lifestyle can sort of really exert a lot of power and control over. And I think that that's the men that, you know, Risa sort of was like, I'm into any sort of men who are into my body. I don't have like hangups about that. But I think to some degree, she's lying to herself as a character and that really she was very interested in men who had power over her because it made her feel affirmed in her gender. Like, I don't think that those men were, they were, some of the men were really specifically interested in her because she was trans. But one of the things I think was affirming for Reese as a character was the power dynamics there where she had lesser power than these men. And in a certain way, that affirmed her womanhood, which is obviously like, you know, it's a controversial thing to say that having less power as a woman can affirm one's womanhood. But at the same time, I think Reese has inherited a whole history of that sort of thought from cis women. You know, like I remember in high school reading Sylvia Plath, you know, every woman adores a fascist and, you know, various poetry like that, where there is a lot in the culture of cis women, where cis women affirm their gender through a certain type of victimhood or a certain type of lesser power. And that way of validating a gender, which is accepted, I think, in a lot of society, except when a trans woman does it, it feels marked. And so then people are like, oh, for you trans women, you don't get to it's sexist for you to affirm your gender in these ways or to even think about affirming your gender in these ways when in fact cis women are doing it all the time and the same dynamics hold for trans women as cis women and so those i think the what i was exploring i think with reese is the way that that power for a trans woman ends up being marked in a way that it can be you know sylvia plath is still thought of as a sort of romantic figure and why is that and and you see this in a lot of books by cis women where it's not necessarily sexist like sally rooney's latest has a sort of uh, normal people and i love the way that she dealt with it by the way but you know there's whole whole ways in which that the character from the woman from uh, normal people was affirming her gender through these masochistic relationships with men but the ways that that gets marked as gender when trans women do it are a little bit different so i think that's what i was exploring with those the relationships that that reese was having with these cis men and so that leads us to probably the most significant of these men in Reese's life, Stanley, who is, yeah. I mean, an absolutely amazing, monstrous creation. So there's <laughs> something about him and where he comes from. Stanley is, he's a chaser in a sort of traditional way in that he's, he's really obsessed with the one 
difference on Reese's body versus cis women, you know, he's, he definitely fetishizes that. But what he really likes is the power that he has over her and the ways in which they kind of do a, a certain sort, like he's rich and she's poor. And so he's sort of able to be a sugar daddy. He's able to kind of objectify her and keep her as a concubine almost and plays these power games with her. And the thing is that a lot of these power games to her do feel sexy at first. And she's into, she's into the power games with him. She's into the ways that like they're sort of wrestling for, for control because he's so attracted to her. He's like obsessed with her and she loves feeling that desire, feeling so desired, feeling so wanted. But the fact that he wants her so bad also means that he badly wants to control her. And because he has money, because he, you know, is, is a conventionally handsome, you know, white, rich man, he's able to sort of exert his power in ways that are very controlling and become, I would say, abusive, well, pretty flatly abusive in the story. And I, I think that that, I see those dynamics a lot with, with trans women, that because trans women are vulnerable and because people don't think of trans women as a sort of like easily abused demographic you know trans women aren't allowed at women's shelters and in in many places and, and they're not thought of as easily victimized they are vulnerable to men like stanley and it's men like you know if you're lonely and you, you want affirmation it's men like stanley who are very willing to give you that and tell you that you're very desirable and so you can kind of get sucked into these relationships with men who who don't end up treating you know kind of reproduce a lot of the worst dynamics of heterosexual relationships i want to move us on to to amy and i guess the central sort of concept in amy's story which is as in the title of the book detransition which i'm not sure to what extent you're aware of the um particular history of where we are in the uk at the moment in terms of um in terms of you know well i was going to say trans rights but really the very um the very concept of a trans personhood's existence i think and so it's somewhat, if this is quite the right word, quite ballsy to see a book in the UK on bookshelves with the word detransition on the cover. And I think a lot of people looking at this first glance might think, you know, what we're talking about here is that, you know, Amy is is a man and then he's a woman for a bit and then he becomes a man again. But, you know, what mm. Amy's journey is in this book is we're talking about here about his ability to present himself as a woman at particular times. Yeah. And that's, you know, I know a lot of people, I don't know a lot of people, but I know some people who detransitioned and I know it's a taboo subject, but part of the reason I put it on the title is, uh, you know, right on the front is that like, is it's sort of announces to a reader, like this is the, there's a, it's a pun, you know, it's sort of an imperative detransition comma baby as like, you know, you've come a long way, baby, or Austin. Yeah, like, baby. yeah, baby. Or, yeah, or like, yeah, exactly. Transition and also a baby. Right. <laughs> like, it's, so it's, it's both of them. But, you know, like the idea that you would say something as loaded as, you know, detransition in sort of like an Austin Powers voice or something, that's like a joke. And to me, it's sort of like, I'm not actually going to treat this thing with a kind of political reverence was sort of what I was hoping to announce with that, that this is that this I'm going to talk about it the way I talk about it with my friends, which is with a certain amount of ownership. Like you have to transition in order to detransition. And so I feel that the concept really belongs to trans people. Like I feel ownership over it. It's a possibility that looms for me. And so I'm going to talk about it the way I talk about lots of things, which is, you know, with a level of humor and with like just kind of exploring it, how I feel about it. And what I've found with the 
you know, both for myself and for many people I know who, again, not many, but the people I know who've detransitioned is it's not so much a thing where it's like the way it's portrayed, you know, I think possibly in British media and elsewhere where it's like, oh, you've had some, you were wrong, you were tricked, you have so many regrets because you were fooled into transitioning and now you regret it. And the whole thing is about, you know, preventing regrets. That's not the experience of detransition that I that I know from other people. It's usually that life is just too hard as a trans woman. And you transition and people get cut off from their families, they get cut off from their friends, they can't get jobs, you know. And so the reason that they detransition isn't, uh, I was tricked into transitioning or something, or I made a mistake about who I am. It was more like, this is a really, really hard way to live. And I'm, however I feel internally, that externally the way I'm living, it's too much. And so I detransition. And so there's a kind of distinction in the book between being trans and doing trans. Ames detransitions and what he's when he detransitions, what he's doing is he's he's not doing trans anymore. It doesn't mean that he isn't trans or that he doesn't have feelings about gender. It's just sort of like he's come to a place where he's like, I'm going to present in a way that makes my life basically easier day to day, even as it causes me to sort of dissociate and have problems connecting with my body, that he's he's basically made a calculated risk around or calculated decision, cost benefit um, sort of thing around. I think that my life will be a little bit easier if I don't present as a woman, no matter how I actually feel. And that's, that's really how I have encountered detransition in the world is people making decisions around What's the easiest way to live? How can I, what am I willing to like put up with or risk? And so that's how it's dealt with in the book that Ames isn't, you know, there's not a lot of piety about his pronoun because he's, or, or things like that, because he's chosen to live this way. And, but it doesn't mean that he doesn't feel all the things that he felt about his gender that caused him to transition in the first place. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Tori Peters and we're talking about her debut novel, The Transition Baby. And Tori, staying with Amy for a moment, there's a, there's another idea that's discussed around Amy, which is this idea that, again, I think this is probably something that's there's, there's probably a slightly controversial idea. I've not come across it before, but that the very existence of probably not talking here about sort of top and bottom surgery, but plastic surgery, cosmetic mm. surgery in terms of nose jobs or like, you know, a forehead job. The fact that these things exist actually exacerbate gender dysphoria in people just because they know it's something that is available to them. Well, I think that that's sort of Reese's theory of it, which I don't necessarily endorse as the author, but I do think it's like worth, it's something that I think happens that the ways that these surgery, like, you know, politically, the thing to say is that all trans people should be able to get all the surgeries that they need in order to like live without dysphoria. And that's completely true. I totally stand by that. But I also think that as I wrote this book, as I lived in the world, I realized that there's ways, there's a types of dysphoria that are specific to trans people. And then there's dysphorias that are sort of produced by the world we live in, by capitalism. And so I think that there's a way in which it's politically powerful to say that these trans surgeries are really, really specific to trans people and trans people really, really need them. And to not sort of look at the nuances of that because you're likely to get a lot more people able to have surgery if you don't look at the nuances of the surgeries. And the thing is, I think that everybody should be able to get these surgeries, but I also have noticed the ways that dysphoria is produced in our society for all sorts of people. The fact that there are people, let's say, who are overweight, right? And they're made to feel disgusting about themselves because they're, they're overweight. And there are all sorts of surgeries are offered to them and they're sort of shunned. And, and the, the existence for people who are very, very overweight looks to me sometimes the ways that they hate their bodies, the ways that they're unable to move on or move forward in their life and are shamed for feeling how they feel or shamed for being how they are. There are kinds of parallels with trans surgeries and the ways that these types of dysphoria are produced by sort of our capitalist moment. Trans surgeries, because they're so controversial, they're so embattled that we're, we're so grateful to have whatever surgeries that we can get. But in fact, we oftentimes don't look at how the surgeries are that like if they were just accepted that trans people could get these surgeries then i think we'd actually have better surgeries than we have right now most of the surgeries are not i don't you know in the uk it's a little bit different because you have nhs and things like that but in the united states all these surgeries were pioneered by private doctors and were proprietary so you know it was a single doctor who was sort of like i'm going to do this i'm going to come up i think that trans women's faces are wrong in this way. So I'm going to come up with a surgery to shave a forehead, or I'm going to come up with a surgery to cut up a jaw. And I'm going to tell all these trans women that if their jaw doesn't look like this, if there's not a sort of like model of the perfect feminine face, that you'll never, you'll always be unhappy. I mean, this is the same reason that I think you have these like ideals of womanhood for cis women too, where it's like, well, everybody's meant to look like a sort of whatever Barbie ideal and everybody who deviates from that ideal ends up feeling miserable that there's a particular way that these kinds of ideals get weaponized against trans women by, I would say, avaricious surgeons 
who are looking to make, you know, to make money and to own sort of proprietary ways of changing trans women's faces. And so that's, it's complicated to make that argument because I want these surgeries to be available. And if they were available in a, in a wider way, I think we could actually deploy them more ethically. Do you think also there's an issue with, because obviously, you know, not every trans presenting person wants or has to have that sort of surgery. And so there is, in some respects, I guess, a an idea that surgery equals authenticity in some sort of way. Yeah, I mean, you have that. You also have like a sort of like that a certain type of beauty standard becomes if you look cis, then you are beautiful, right? And, and actually... Like one of the characters in the book is is this character Babs, who nobody can figure out what Babs's gender is. They can only figure out that Babs is incredibly striking and like almost upsettingly beautiful. And like that for me, like that Babs character is like a counterpoint to this, where it's like that Babs character is so beautiful in in her kind of androgyny that she's sort of blown away these beauty standards, and at the same token that you have sort of like, well, what are the beauty standards doing? Then you also have these sort of ways in which I think conservative ideas about surgery, such as like, well, in order to go to this woman's space, you have to have had bottom surgery. You're not really, you know, even in, I remember in the Scandinavian countries, I don't know what their rules are now, but even as recently as, you know, 15 years ago, in order to have the gender marker on your ID changed, you had to have had bottom surgery. You had to be what they called, I think, irreversibly sterilized. And to me, these are very old conservative ways of like understanding womanhood, that womanhood is just certain ideas of fertility or certain ideas of the body. And um, that is are actually also oftentimes ex- exclusionary to cis women. You know, when they did the bathroom bans in the United States, where people were sort of policing who got to go into the bathroom. Largely, they didn't stop trans women. They stopped cis women who looked a little bit butch, you know? So when you start getting around these, these ideas of this is what a body has to look like, or doesn't our body, body must look like this or that, it's not just trans women who end up being policed for it. It's everybody. And I think that trans women just become a sort of like crucible at which we begin to learn what's maybe upsetting about our standards for gender in our society for everybody. Let's talk about Katrina, the third character in this triangle for a moment. Now, she's a cis-divorced woman, and indeed this book is dedicated to cis-divorced women everywhere. Tell me why. Well, again, it was sort of when I was in my 30s, and I was looking for models of how to live. And the previous generation of trans women, you know, what they could do was a little bit different than what was available to them was not that available to me because I think the previous generation had problems with, um, they had to live stealth. They couldn't be open about being trans. There was HIV, there was substance abuse or suicide. And so I was looking for role models and I started reading books by divorced women like I started reading Rachel Kosk, Elena Ferrante, uh, I'm sorry, about divorced characters and Jenny Offal's book. And I started realizing that there are all these parallels in, the, in what happened for divorced women and what happened for trans women in that divorce stories and transition stories are very similar. There's kind of like a break. Um, you know, you go through life with these illusions about who you are and what your opportunities are. And then you arrive at a moment of failure and you have to sort of reassess what your life is going to be going forward and you can't reinvest in those old illusions but you also can't get bitter you have to move forward 
And that sort of act of moving forward and being really honest with yourself about what you want and who you are, there was a model for it from divorced cis women that I was like, oh, this is how you take a hard look at yourself. And this is how you begin to build a new life at a time in your life when you weren't expecting to. And so as I began to like sort of look at divorce women as a model for how I might build my life, I also began to think that like, oh, I have ideas about gender and about living that also could be useful to these divorce women. I want to have a conversation. I want to have an exchange that actually we have an affinity with each other for, we have an affinity that is, that feels very powerful and they've taught me in a lot of ways how to live. And this book is in some ways my gift back. Or my response, I guess I would say. And at the point at which the three characters first meet to discuss the possibility of the three of them taking on the baby together, um, that's literally the first time that Reese and Katrina meet each other. And Reese is talking about how Katrina, as a as a cis woman, obviously, you know, possesses the whole idea of of motherhood and and you know the ability to to have a child. Katrina, as it turns out, obviously is is also somebody who's um who's you know, in her first marriage as, as had a miscarriage. But she mm. also makes the comment that, hang on, hang on, Reese, because, you know, Katrina is a woman of colour. And actually what you're talking about here is it's cis white women and certainly mm. cis white women of a certain social situation, social standing that are expected to have children. Women of colour are discouraged. Yeah. And I don't know, I mean, to the degree to which that's the case, in the United States, there's a long history of it, of a certain type of feminism in the United States is about the right to not have babies, but that's often for white women. And that for women of color in the United States, it wasn't so easy to have children or people were discouraged. You know, there are concepts of welfare queens, you know, women of color who have many children and take money from the government or anchor babies, you know, immigrant women who come and have babies in order to like anchor, you know, to get citizenship, these sort of racist terms that are all discouraging. And certainly like the history of slavery and things like that in the United States is is being able to have children is, is very fraught throughout the whole American history. And then we had sort of the conversation about reproductive rights became very, very focused on the right to not have children in the United States. And I think that that is actually in some ways a concept for a certain type of white womanhood. And why I was interested in having positioning Katrina, how she's positioned in the book, is that Reese is sort of, you know, she passes as cis and she's sort of almost attained in like in the sort of sex in the city problem kind of question. She's almost attained the type of privileged white womanhood. And by privilege, I don't mean in the usual political context, I mean sort of centered white womanhood. And likewise, Katrina, who has a good job, who's mixed race, uh, her father's Jewish and her mother's Asian, she also has almost attained a sort of cis white womanhood, but not quite. So they're both sort of having this conversation from places where they're not quite there, but they're not quite there in different ways. And in what ways, and so the book sort of presses them together to see how the concepts of motherhood or the concepts of, of ideal womanhood begin to fall apart for both of them. And hopefully, you know, this is why I dedicated to divorce system is that, that their solutions are are found like sort of across those differences that we have a lot in common that we can work together and that there is a kind of affinity found um, between Katrina and Reese on these questions. 
and through this idea of you know of the, of the baby, the, the the literal baby, that the possibility the three of them are going to um, are going to take on. Other ideas of motherhood are, are obviously discussed, and again, you have some sort of fun with this in the book as well. But people who are not necessarily that versed in the trans world may have seen on on you know something like you know Paris is Burning or RuPaul's Drag Race that in drag culture, mm. particularly Latina or um, or drag queens of color, talk about mothers and you know and, and the idea of motherhood within that world so tell us something about these ideas of, of motherhood within the trans world right so there's sort of like you know when you come out in some there's a lot of different sort of trans cultures um you know i come from a sort of like white brooklyn like i guess you'd say like hipster or whatever trans culture and motherhood wasn't a big thing you'd see it with like latina women who are immigrating here they'll they will sort of find like a mother figure who will show them how to make a life and, you know, show them like, here's where you get your clothes, here's where you get your hormones and stuff like that. It wasn't such a big thing in, in sort of white culture in Brooklyn to find a kind of trans mom. Like that, that wasn't historically how it was done, but it's starting to happen. There's sort of uh, new generations of baby transes all the time. And you get these people who trans women in our thirties and we end up sort of, even though we're haven't necessarily figured it all out, we end up sort of mothering and showing younger trans girls. And by younger, I don't mean even age-wise younger. I mean, just when they transitioned younger, kind of how to live and how to take care of each other kind of the emotional work of a lot of times, you know, you transition and it's a shock, you know, you lived a certain way before and you had all these opportunities and then you transition and suddenly you have no opportunities or reduced opportunities and you're angry and you're upset and you can't date and your, your family's rejected you. And there's a lot of like emotional work that is sort of, how do I live? And sometimes you turn to other trans women who can show you, this is how you do it. And sometimes that sometimes you show people by being a positive role model. And sometimes you show people by being a negative role model. Like Reese in this book, I think she thinks of herself as like a positive role model to lots of other trans women. But in some ways, she's also kind of a mess. And I'm sure there are trans women out there who are like, by knowing Reese, they're like, I'm not going to make Reese's mistakes. In some ways, even with writing this book, there's things that I want other trans women to emulate in what's going on in this book. And there's some of it, you know, this book, the word, the adjective that I think has been described, used to describe this book more than almost anything else has been like messy, um, <laughs> which, you know, it's interesting to say it like in a sort of complimentary way, but I'm like, okay, messy, but they are like the characters are messy. you know. There's, and and some of what what you learn is sort of like, a negative role model in the same way that almost anybody is sort of like, in some ways you want to, you want to be like your parents. And in some ways you're like, Oh, my parents are exactly how I shouldn't be. And these sort of dynamics are really, really strong with um, especially trans women and the ways that we sort of create community with each other. Um, I myself have like a couple of different, you know, trans daughters and Obviously, I don't have no real authority over them. I can't tell them what to do. And sometimes they'll come to me for advice. And sometimes they'll tell me that I'm wrong and I don't get it. Um, and I feel that way with, you know, where I have, there's a couple of older trans women who I think of as sort of my trans moms for both, you know, good and ill. And then, so I, I sort of take that idea of like the trans motherhood and the way that motherhood is more than just a concept of like, do you have a biological child and kind of play with the baby in this book, the unborn child in this book is both a sort of abstract concept. And I mean, I think in a lot of ways, it's the baby for Reese. It's the idea of a baby that 
Faris thinks can make her like a legitimate woman. Like if I have a real, if I have like a, a baby, if I'm a, if I'm a mother that's recognized by the rest of the world, as like, this is you a mother, you're raising a child that her womanhood could have a kind of legitimacy that's often been denied to her. And one of the things that was interesting to me in writing this was realizing that that actually also isn't like, I had problems with that kind of motherhood. The idea of like a baby in order to validate one's own gender, or one's own self. And the move in the book is also for Reese to sort of move away from the an abstract child or sort of any child to a, a particular child, like a this child. Like, and that's that's often the move that I see lots of mothers making is like, I want to get pregnant to have a baby. And then when they have a child, it's like, I don't need a baby. I want my baby. I want this baby. And I have a I have a stepson now. And I didn't have a stepson when I when I wrote this book. And the difference sort of for me now between wanting a child and, and feeling how a child might change my life versus what is now my child and the specific personhood of my child. That was also sort of a trajectory that I was trying to play with in the book was moving from what does children mean in the abstract to to parents and to motherhood and to trans mothers versus at the end what do we as specific individuals mean to each other one more thing for me then then i'll get you to to read a bit of the book if you would so yeah i I think people are right to say these characters are messy um But what they mean by that, really, is that these characters are human and they are great, interesting, rounded characters that feel like real people. And, you know, this book is it's really funny and it's a great read and it's getting great reviews and it looks like it's going to be a big success. And that's fantastic. And obviously, it's great to see a book by a trans author that can have some sort of popular appeal at the same time. There's also this thing where that then positions you as the successful trans writer representing Mm. all of the trans people, which, of course, is not your responsibility or something you should have to do. And I wonder what your thoughts are on at this point in, you know, the book's not been out that long, but at this point in its sort of life. I love that. I love that people talk about these characters and disagree with them. Like in a lot of ways, people, some people will be like, I hate Reese. You know, she's unlikable. I dislike her. But I am always like a little bit gratified in that they're talking about her like she's a real person. Like I've seen on people gossiping about her on Twitter. And I've always felt that way about my favorite authors that like, they'll have characters and I'll feel like I can like turn a corner on a street and I might run into their characters. And so it's really gratifying that people are like, like these are messy characters in ways that like real people are messy and they get mad at them and make them I think the way that they sometimes dislike real people Um, and that's that's a lot of fun for me as an author I think also that messiness makes them a little less representative you know when I first the fact that I write about a lot of like the sort of ugly not politically um, salient or or not not politically appealing aspects of transness means that a lot of people actually don't want me to represent them. And that's real freedom for me. When people are like, oh, this is some like Brooklyn white girl doing her Brooklyn white girl thing in this way. That's great. I love it because then it actually frees me up as an artist to just tell the stories that I want to tell instead of do some sort of pious, you know, I speak on behalf of all trans women. And instead of me, by having these messy characters who people are like, um, you know, not sure I'm exactly like her, it frees me from having to like do the work of talking about, you know, like, oh, hey, I don't represent you because people are doing it for me. They're like, I'm not like that. 
And so then the characters just get to be by themselves and it doesn't become a question of representation. I think that people who haven't read the book talk about it as like, oh, this is a this is a trans book or this is like a great the great trans novel or something like that. And people who have read the book are like, this is not a universal trans story. This is like these three women doing their thing. And so I a lot of times I'm happy that the book does the work for me to not have to sort of become a a representational figure or speak on behalf of other trans women because it's it's actually a real constraint like I, I can't make bitchy jokes if I'm speaking on behalf of all trans women everywhere but if I'm speaking on behalf of like two characters I can be really bitchy or really snarky and it's kind of why you know the book I think is funny for people is that is a in a way that even when I'm speaking publicly I don't quite have the freedom to be as bitchy as I would otherwise be but in the book, I, it's just a total, like, these characters are just themselves. They're just going to say everything that they're going to say. And that, for me, a type of artistic freedom that I'm, I'm happy their messiness gives me. Can I get you to, to read a bit to finish this off then? Sure. And so I'm going to read here, thinking of like mother-daughter trans relationships. I'm going to read from a part where Reese goes to see her basically trans daughter at a club. In, uh, in Brooklyn, and the trans star is working as a drag queen performer. On a last minute whim, Reese decided to go see her friend Talia's weekly set at Dynamite, one of several North Brooklyn queer dive bars run by the same shady family of straight people. Talia was a former drag queen turned transsexual, one of the earliest converts in the great drag enlightenment. When a significant quorum of Brooklyn's queens came out as trans, began to inject estrogen and renounce their gay past, the consequences of which miffed them into misandry as the desperately cute twinks who used to sleep with them no longer would. Talia runs a set called Anger Management in which she plays tropical dubstep to keep everyone chill, then undercuts her chill vibes with hourly advice sessions in which she solicits Ann Lander style questions from the various twinks who form her now sexually unavailable fan base, then berates them for their stupidity in profound and profane harangues. It was reliably the most entertaining way for Reese to spend a Tuesday night. Tonight, one of the twinks asks about sharing chores in a relationship. The twink has found that in his relationship with a masked dom, he's doing much more household work. So can he employ feminist arguments for a more equitable share in the domestic labor? To which Tali responds that no, he is a little bitch. And in the midst of a shortage of actual true to God dom tops, he'd best start scrubbing if he wants to keep his man happy. However, Talia adds, the whole premise of the question ought to be rejected because there is no such thing as a pure mask top. Everyone will eventually want something in their butt because that is the nature of having a butt. When the moment that things get equitable in bed, so should they be in domestic labor. The twinks giggle happily, but Talia rebukes them and demands they give her quarters for her own laundry because her parents have cut off her money as a consequence for yelling at them on the phone. For emphasis, she shakes her tip bucket from the pedestal DJ booth from which she reigns, then segues into one of her favorite themes, her parents. Her parents are good, long-suffering people, she tells the assembled twinks, and these good, long-suffering people still support her at age 29 because she is a spoiled brat who has never had a job. A weekly show at a queer bar doesn't count, which is an embarrassment to her. And what does she do to repay her parents for their generosity? She spits the words into the mic so acerbically that it pops with her consonants, then pauses for a second before answering her own question in mock outraged oration. She changed her gender just to stymie and confuse them. And now she yells at them on the phone and hangs up on them if they misgender her. That's what they get for supporting a child with artistic tendencies. 
But what else did they expect? Did they think they could just let their child wear capri pants and there would be no consequences? So I've been talking to Tori Peters. We've been talking about her novel, Detransition Baby, which is out in the UK from Serpent's Tale. Tori, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a pleasure. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.